Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater, and this midnight I will tell you the tale of the Whitechapel Women, Part 5. We are still in the early hours of Sunday, September 30th, 1888. At 1 o'clock a.m., Elizabeth Stride is found murdered in Dutfield's yard, her throat cut, the Whitechapel murderer likely interrupted by the witness who discovered her body. At 1.45 a.m., Catherine Eddowes is found dead in Mitre Square by a policeman. The mutilations to her body are by far the worst of any victim in the Whitechapel murders so far. The police go into overdrive, trying to catch the serial killer known as Jack the Ripper. At 2.55 a.m., a little over one hour after Catherine Eddowes was murdered, a policeman named Alfred Long is on his regular beat, which takes him through Golston Street in Whitechapel. He notices a torn piece of white apron on the common stairs leading into 118-199 Golston Street. Lodging. The apron is saturated with fresh blood and smeared with fecal matter. This is later positively determined as the piece of apron that was missing from the clothing of Catherine Eddowes, cut away by her killer, evidently used to wipe his hands, and then discarded. On the wall, Above the piece of blood-stained apron, a message is written on white chalk with white chalk on the black bricks. Policeman Alfred Long stated the writing said, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Another policeman recorded the words as the Jews spelled J-U-W-E-S are not the men who will be blamed for nothing. We don't know which of these recollections is correct. Sir Charles Warren, head of London's Metropolitan Police, ordered the message erased before the sun rose so it would not inflame East End racism about immigrant Jews. 
Photographers were at the scene, ready to take pictures of the writing when the sun came up, but Warren overruled them. There is no way to know if this message written in chalk was also written by the Whitechapel murderer as he discarded the piece of Catherine Eddowes' apron. Perhaps, perhaps not. What is important to note is that the killer, traveling from Mitre Square to Golston Street after the murder of Catherine Eddowes, was going back into the heart of Whitechapel, suggesting that Jack the Ripper, whoever he was, was returning home. On Monday, October 1st, 1888, the Daily Telegraph reported, London this morning will talk and think of nothing else except these new proofs of the continued presence in our streets of some monster or monsters in human form. As the sun finally rose on Sunday, September 30th, all of Whitechapel awoke in terror. Two more women were now dead. At the site of Elizabeth Stride's murder, owners of the building charged curiosity seekers a small fee to view the exact spot where Liz Stride had breathed her final breath. The entrances to Mitre Square were blocked off, but a huge crowd gathered there anyway just to be close to the spot where Catherine Eddowes was murdered and mutilated. One of the people in the crowd at Mitre Square that bloody Sunday morning was John Kelly, the boyfriend of Catherine Eddowes. Remember, Catherine Eddowes, a.k.a. Kate Kelly, told John Kelly she was going to visit her sister the last time he saw her alive. He thought his love was safe at her sister's. He had no idea of the horrible truth. John Kelly later testified, On Sunday morning I wandered round the crowds that had been gathered by the talk of the two fresh murders. I stood and looked at the very spot where my poor old gal had laid with her body all cut to pieces and I never knew it. I never thought of her in connection with it for I thought she was safe at her daughter's. It wasn't until the next day, Monday, October 1st, 1888, that John Kelly started to worry, because Catherine Eddowes still had not come home. Then John Kelly read an account of the murders in the Star newspaper and saw the woman murdered in Mitre Square had a tattoo on her forearm in blue ink of the initials T.C. 
the initials of Catherine Eddowes' first love, Thomas Conway. In a fog of terror and anguish, John Kelly was taken to the mortuary, where he identified the body of his love, Catherine Kate Kelly Eddowes, as the latest victim of Jack the Ripper. Paul Begg writes of this moment in time eloquently in his book, Jack the Ripper, The Facts. Darkness came and streets emptied. The well-lit main streets retained something of the bustle, but the side roads, alleys, and courts, ill-lit or in darkness, were deserted. Prostitutes themselves were suffering from want of business, poorly dressed, unable to find money for food or a bed or a bit of warmth in a pub, they huddled in shop doorways, trying to get a little shelter from the cold wind. On October 3rd, 1888, the Daily Telegraph reported, Eventually moved on by the police, Many of these unfortunate women gathered near a church or a chapel, as if in the belief that within the shadow of a temple of worship there was some protection, even for them. The spectacle was a very sad one. The Star newspaper reported, Others stood in the glare of a street lamp or huddled in doorways, all discussing the murders. He'll be coming through the houses and pulling us out of our beds next, says one. Not he, says another. He's too clever for that. He catches the late birds, he does. Then he won't catch me, says the first. I don't leave my doorway after dark. On October 6, 1888, Robert Anderson, the Assistant Commissioner of Scotland Yard, returns from a vacation. In his autobiography, The Lighter Side of My Official Life, Anderson writes, On my return, I found the Jack the Ripper scare in full swing. When the stolid English go in for a scare, they take leave of all moderation and common sense. Robert Anderson was told by his superiors at Scotland Yard that he was now responsible for catching the Whitechapel murderer. Anderson accepted this, but wrote in his autobiography, The measures I found in operation were, in my opinion, wholly indefensible and scandalous. These wretched women were plying their trade under definite police protection. Let the police of that district... He is speaking of Whitechapel. I urged receive orders to arrest every known street woman found on the prowl after midnight, or else let us warn them that the police will not protect them. Though the former course would have been merciful to the very small class of women affected by it, it was deemed too drastic, and so I fell back on the second 
this very small class of women is how Robert Anderson puts it. It is a historical fact that at least 1,200 of the women living in Whitechapel in 1888 were sex workers, each of them human beings with their own life stories that matter. Scotland Yard's official decree through Robert Anderson, quote, the police will not protect them. On Tuesday, October 16th, 1888, George Lusk, the president of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, a sort of neighborhood watch, received a small parcel in the mail. It was a cardboard box wrapped in brown paper bearing an illegible London postmark. George Lusk opened the box and found a piece of stinking, rotting meat he thought was a human kidney, and with it there was a letter. The letter reads, From Hell Mr. Lusk, Sor. I send you half the kidney I took from one woman and preserved it for you. T'other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. The half-kidney that accompanied the from-hell letter was judged to be likely human. It was not suffused with chemical fluid as it would have been if it was a medical specimen. It had been primitively preserved in wine before being sent to George Lusk. Medical professionals at the time thought the kidney was possibly from a woman who was suffering from Bright's disease, a condition that Catherine Eddowes did suffer from. Was it really hers? We do not know for sure. About the letter itself, John Douglas, the man who invented criminal profiling for the FBI, whose career is the basis for the Netflix show Mindhunter, writes in his book, The Cases That Haunt Us, quote, 
I think it is highly significant that even after the frenzy created by Jack the Ripper pseudonym, the writer of the Lusk letter does not use it, even after he is tagged with such a glamorous title. He does not take it on himself. Out of all the letters received, the From Hell letter is the only one most scholars believe could have been real. Meanwhile, the women of Whitechapel waited as the nights grew colder during the autumn of terror wondering who among them would be next. Mary Jane Kelly is in many ways an enigma. The only sources we have about her life are from the testimony of her boyfriend, Joseph Barnett, based on what she herself had told him. There are no verified photographs of her where she is still alive. Almost every person who knew her in the final years of her life described her in different ways. She was reported as having blonde hair, or red hair, or dark hair, and blue eyes. Mary Jane Kelly sometimes used the French spelling of her name, Marie Jeanette, and was also known in Whitechapel as Ginger, Fair Emma, Dark Mary, or Black Mary the latter two nicknames supposedly bestowed on her because of the anger and depression that would come to the fore when she had been drinking. She was five feet seven inches tall, and all surviving sources describe Mary Jane Kelly as being very beautiful. Unlike Martha Tabram, Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, and Catherine Eddowes, who were all in their forties when they were murdered. Mary Jane Kelly was only twenty-five years old at the time of her death. According to Mary Jane Kelly herself, she was born around 1863 in Limerick, Ireland, we don't know if she meant the town or county of Limerick. Her father was an iron worker named John Kelly, and she had six or seven brothers and one sister. Her mother's name is unknown. As a child, Mary and her family moved from Ireland to Wales. When she was about 16 years old, Mary Jane Kelly married a coal miner with the last name of Davis or Davies. Her husband's first name is unknown. Two or three years after the marriage, when Mary was 18 or 19, her husband was killed 
instantly when the mine he was working in exploded. So, at her young age, 18 or 19, Mary Jane Kelly was suddenly a widow. The widowed Mary Jane Kelly now had no means of financial support. After her husband's tragic and sudden death, Mary went to Cardiff, the capital of Wales, to live with her cousin, Mary's cousin, whose name we do not know, introduced Mary into the work of prostitution. However, the Cardiff police have no record of Mary as a sex worker. Mary Jane Kelly moved from Wales to London in 1884. An investigative reporter for the Press Association wrote, It would appear that on her arrival in London she made the acquaintance of a French woman residing in the neighborhood of Knightsbridge, who, she informed her friends, led her to pursue the degraded life which had now culminated in her untimely end. She made no secret of the fact that while she was with this woman, she would drive about in a carriage and made several journeys to the French capital and, in fact, led the life of what is described as that of a lady. By some means, however, at present not exactly clear, she suddenly drifted into the East End. Here, fortune failed her, and a career that stands out in bold and sad contrast to her earlier experience was commenced. So, unlike the other women murdered by Jack the Ripper, Mary Jane Kelly worked in a bordello of the highest class in the West End. She knew what it felt like to wear something beautiful, to ride around the city of London like a princess in a luxurious carriage. But then she went to Paris, and something went deeply wrong there. Most scholars believe that Mary Jane Kelly was a victim of sex trafficking which was wise, widely used to entrap women throughout the Victorian age. We do not know how she did it, but somehow Mary Jane Kelly escaped back to London, but found her old life in the West End closed off to her. Only then did she move to the East End. She had no other choice. Mary Jane Kelly told several of her new friends in Whitechapel that, quote, her parents had discarded her. Mary also confided that one of her brothers was a soldier and one of her siblings was an actor on the London stage. Mary said she never had anything to do with her family, but... Her final landlord, John McCarthy, testified that Mary had sometimes received letters written to her from Ireland. He believed they were from her mother. 
we don't know for sure. In 1886, Mary Jane Kelly is living at Cooley's Lodging House on Thrall Street in the heart of Whitechapel, practicing sex work to survive. While living in the lodging house, she met Joseph Barnett on April 8, 1887. Good Friday. Joseph Barnett worked as a fruit hawker at Billingsgate Market. On April 8, he took Mary out for a drink, and they arranged to meet again the following day. On their second date, they decided to live together. Joseph Barnett later said that during this period, Mary Jane Kelly's father came to the East End to look for her, and Mary hid from him until he left. Again, we do not know exactly why. Barnett said that Kelly's family were well-to-do people, and that Mary's background was, quote, much superior to that of most persons in her position in life. Barnett always found her of sober habits, but their landlord, John McCarthy, stated, when in liquor she was very noisy, otherwise she was a very quiet woman. It appears that in the last years of her life, after being forced to live in Whitechapel and grappling with everything that meant, Mary Jane Kelly began to drink more and more heavily. However, one neighbor, Catherine Pickett, said she was a good, quiet, pleasant girl and was well-liked by all of us. After deciding to live with Joseph Barnett, Mary Jane Kelly moved out of the lodging house and into a room at Paternoster Row. Kelly and Barnett were evicted from this house for not paying their rent and drinking too much. Then they moved into a small, shabby room at 13 Miller's Court, owned by John McCarthy. 13 Miller's Court was actually the back room of 26 Dorset Street. Only a flimsy partition separated Mary's tiny room from the 26 Dorset Street's room. In Mary's room, there was a fireplace, a bedside table so close to the door that the door would bang against it when opened. The bed was against the thin partition wall. The only light in the room, apart from the fireplace, was a single candle. There were two windows in the room which faced the court. The window next to the door had been broken during a fight between Mary Kelly and Joseph Barnett, and an old coat covered the window to keep out the cold wind. Kelly and Barnett had also misplaced the key to the room, so they opened the door by putting their hand through the broken window and reaching for the doorknob inside. The room behind the flimsy partition of Mary Kelly's room was listed as 26 Dorset Street, 
and it was unoccupied and used as a storage room by landlord John McCarthy landlord John McCarthy because it was kept unlocked the room was often used by men and women of Whitechapel as a shelter when they could not afford a bed for the night it was known locally as the shed after the Whitechapel murders began this room was boarded up, preventing access. In an astonishing coincidence, one of the sometime homeless women of Whitechapel who sought refuge in the room right next to Mary Jane Kelly's room at 13 Miller's Court was Catherine Eddowes. Remember, Catherine Eddowes pawned a pair of boots under the name of Jane Kelly of Dorset Street, and as she was released from jail less than an hour before her murder, Catherine Eddowes told the police her name was Mary Ann Kelly. We don't know what this means, but it does make you wonder. Paul Begg writes in his book Jack the Ripper, The Facts, it has often been observed that all roads lead to Dorset Street. Mary Ann Nichols seems to have no known connection, but Annie Chapman lodged at 35 Dorset Street when murdered. Elizabeth Stride lived at 38 Dorset Street, and Catherine Eddowes may have used number 26. And Mary Jane Kelly lived right next door, behind a thin wall. It makes you wonder about that quote from Catherine Eddowes. I have come back to earn the reward offered for the apprehension of the Whitechapel murderer. I think I know him. Perhaps she did. Perhaps he lived among all of them on Dorset Street. Mary Jane Kelly always had Joseph Barnett read her the latest newspaper articles about the murders, suggesting that she herself was unable to read. A Scotland Yard detective later wrote, No one in Whitechapel was more afraid of Jack the Ripper than Mary Jane Kelly. Mary Jane Kelly and Joseph Barnett seemed to live together happily until Barnett lost his job in August 1888, just as the Whitechapel murders began. To help both of them survive, Mary returned to prostitution, which made Barnett very angry and caused frequent violent arguments. It was during one of these fights that their window was broken. On October 30th, 1888, Joseph Barnett breaks up with Mary Jane Kelly. He later testified that he finally left Mary because she would allow other sex workers to stay the night in their room. He said, quote, She would never have gone wrong again. 
and I shouldn't have left her had it not been for the prostitutes stopping at the house. She only let them because she was good-hearted and did not like to refuse them shelter on cold, bitter nights. Despite their separation, Joseph Barnett continues to visit Mary Jane Kelly every day, lending her money whenever he has it to give, and keeping her company as best he can. One of Mary Jane Kelly's closest friends towards the end of her life was a fellow sex worker named Lizzie Albrook. At 8 o'clock p.m. on Thursday, November 8, 1888, Lizzie Albrook visits Mary Jane Kelly at 13 Miller's Court. Albrook later testifies about her final words with Mary before her death that night. I knew Mary Jane Kelly very well as we were near neighbors. About the last thing she said to me was, Whatever you do, don't you do wrong and turn out as I did. She had often spoken to me in this way and warned me against going on the street as she had done. She told me, too, that she was heartily sick of the life she was leading and wished she had enough money to go back to Ireland where her people lived. I do not believe she would have gone out as she did if she had not been obliged to do so to keep herself from starvation. At 11 o'clock p.m. on Thursday, November 8, 1888, some sources say Mary Jane Kelly was drinking in the Britannia pub with a man and that she was very drunk by this time. At 11.45 p.m., a widow and sex worker named Mary Cox sees Mary Jane Kelly outside Miller's court with a man. Cox said, Good night, Mary Jane. And Kelly said, drunkenly slurring her speech, Good night, I am going to have a song. Then Mary went into her room, and the man followed slamming the door of 13 Miller's Court shut. Mary Cox went up to her own room at Miller's Court and stated that she fell asleep listening to Mary Jane Kelly singing the song A Violet from Mother's Grave. At 12.30 a.m., on Friday, November 9, 1888, neighbor Catherine Pickett still hears Mary Jane Kelly singing. It begins to rain in Whitechapel. At 2 o'clock a.m., a man named George Hutchinson runs into Mary Jane Kelly at Flower and Dean Street. Mary says, Mr. Hutchinson, can you lend me sixpence? George Hutchinson replies, I can't. I've spent all my money. Mary Kelly said, Good morning. I must go and find some money. She did not appear to be drunk. 
Hutchinson watched Mary Jane Kelly approach a man who had been lingering in the street. The man placed his hand on Mary's shoulder, and they talked. What they said, George Hutchinson could not hear. Mary and the man both laughed. Mary Kelly then said, All right. The man put his right arm around Mary Kelly's shoulders, and he said, You will be all right for what I have told you. George Hutchinson noted the man carried a parcel in his left hand, about eight inches long. Mary Jane Kelly and the man walked back to 13 Miller's Court, and George Hutchinson followed them. He heard Mary say to the man, All right, my dear, come along. You will be comfortable. Oh, I lost my handkerchief. And then the man gave Mary Kelly his own handkerchief. It was red. And then Mary and the man went into her room at 13 Miller's Court and shut the door. Fearing something was wrong, George Hutchinson watched Miller's Court until 3 o'clock a.m. According to his testimony, no one left or entered the court during that time. Finally, George Hutchinson left, and he wandered the streets of Whitechapel until dawn. He had nowhere else to go, nowhere to rest. At 3.30 a.m., an upstairs neighbor at Miller's Court named Sarah Lewis wakes up to the sound of the church clock tolling the half hour. She lies awake in bed. Sometime shortly before 4 o'clock a.m., Sarah Lewis hears a young woman screaming the word, Murder. Between 3.30 a.m. and 4 o'clock a.m., Elizabeth Prater, who lives in the room above Mary Jane Kelly's, is woken up by her kitten, Diddles, walking across her face. Sometime shortly before 4 o'clock a.m., Elizabeth Prater hears the faint cry of a woman saying, Murder. Cries like that are heard all the time in the East End of London. She pays it no mind and sleeps. At 5.45 a.m., neighbor Mary Cox hears what she describes as a man's footsteps leaving Miller's Court. At 10.30 a.m., landlord John McCarthy sends his assistant Thomas Boyer to collect rent from Mary Jane Kelly at 13 Miller's Court. Boyer knocks on Kelly's locked door, but there is no answer. So, then he pulls back the coat covering the broken window. At first, all Thomas Boyer could see were two lumps of apparently human flesh on the bedside table. Then he looked at the bed and the bloody, 
butchered woman he saw lying on the bed was barely recognizable as a human being. Metropolitan Police Officer Walter Dew later wrote in his autobiography, The whole horror of that room will only be known to those of us whose duty it was to enter it. The full details are unprintable. There was little left of her, not so much more than a skeleton. All this was horrifying enough, but the mental picture of that sight which remains most vividly with me is the poor woman's eyes. They were wide open and seemed to be staring straight at me with a look of terror in the mortuary later. Joseph Barnett identified the body of Mary Jane Kelly by her eyes. He had few other choices of identification. There was almost nothing left of her. Mary Jane Kelly was murdered on Friday, November 9th, 1888. She was only 25 years old. This story, their story, is not over yet. There will be one more chapter in this tale. My name is Josh Hitchens, and you've been listening to Going Dark Theater in honor of the life of Mary Jane Kelly. I close this chapter with words from a public domain recording of the song she was heard singing during the last hours of her life, a violet plucked from mother's grave originally written by J.W. Pepper in 1881. This one is for you, Mary Jane Kelly. Rest in peace. time, my friends, going dark.